Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello, everybody. The Fits on Fantasy podcast is back after a brief one-week hiatus. I apologize for my absence last week, but I was on an extended golf trip, and then there was a flurry of activity around our house at the end of the school year for the kids, and blah, blah, blah. Lame excuse, lame excuse, lame excuse. But hey, I am going to try to make it up to you this week, and I'm going to do it by bringing on a top-notch guest. In just a couple of moments, I will be joined by Mr. Jeff Ratcliffe of Pro Football Focus. Jeff is a ubiquitous presence for those of us who are really into fantasy football. He's a prolific column writer for PFF. He's one of the very best rankers in the business. He hosts an award-winning radio show on the SiriusXM Fantasy Channel, and he also hosts a podcast for PFF. And here's the thing. Jeff has a fascinating background that I'm not sure a lot of his followers are aware of. I'm going to ask Jeff about the path that led him from college up to this point, and he is going to spin you a tale that involves cultural anthropology and online poker, and then, speaking of poker, a well-timed bluff that helped launch his career in fantasy football. And of course, there's going to be some pure fantasy football conversation too. I want to ask Jeff about Todd Gurley, I want to ask him about the Philadelphia Eagles, since he is a Philly guy. I want to ask him about all the best ball drafts he's been doing. And I think I saw him mention somewhere that he's already logged close to 100 best ball drafts. So we'll get to Jeff soon. And please, if for some reason you aren't following Jeff on Twitter yet, which seems completely unfathomable if you follow me and listen to this show, since Jeff is a blue marlin in the pond that we both swim in, and I am just your average crappie, But if you aren't following him yet, go find him on Twitter at Jeff Ratcliffe. All right, we'll get to Jeff in just a moment. But first, a quick announcement. I am going to co-manage a team in the Crown League along with my pal Melissa Jacobs, a.k.a. the football girl. Uh, Actually, I'm just riding Melissa's coattails into this thing, if we're being completely honest about it. So what is the Crown League? It is a 12-team auction Superflex Keeper League with some other fantasy analysts, a couple of media types, a former NFL general manager, and a former NFL player. And people are actually going to be able to buy shares in a team if they so desire. Now, I don't want to get too deeply into that aspect of it because there is still some unfinished business between the Crown League and the Securities and Exchange Commission, but I would urge you to check out thecrownleague.com for more information. But each of these 12 franchises are rooted in an actual American city, and Melissa and I are going to be managing Seattle's entry, the Seattle Emerald Haze, and what a great city to represent 
I've got some family in that city. I've got a cousin I'm very close to who lives downtown. I've got a stepbrother who lives on Bainbridge Island. And then there's the music angle, man. Seattle is such an awesome music town. Birthplace of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, so many other phenomenal bands. Even the name of our franchise, the Emerald Haze, would seem to be a tip of the hat to Jimi Hendrix, a great Seattle product. So I'm fired up for this. I am pleased as punch to have weaseled my way into this. And hey, I wasn't in enough fantasy leagues before this one came along, right? Let's throw another log onto the fire. All right, everyone, let's get to it now. Let's bring in this week's guest, Jeff Radcliffe, Pro Football Focus. Joining me now is Jeff Ratcliffe of Pro Football Focus. Jeff is the director of fantasy at PFF. He hosts the PFF Fantasy Podcast and also the Pro Football Focus Fantasy Show on Sirius XM Radio, which has won awards for Best Radio Show from the Fantasy Sports Trade Association and the Fantasy Sports Writers Association. Jeff is also unquestionably one of the premier rankers, one of the people whose rankings I always check when I have a tough lineup decision in one of my own leagues. And obviously... Jeff is one of the most indispensable Twitter followers, follows for people who play fantasy football. His Twitter handle is at Jeff Radcliffe. And I hadn't been aware of this until recently, but Google also tells me that Jeff is an accomplished professional lacrosse player from Canada. Uh, Jeff, so (laughs) glad you could take time out from your training to make a guest appearance on the show. Uh, thanks, Pat. That's quite an introduction. And yes, um, Google has conflated me and the other Jeff Ratcliffe because there are two of us. There are lots of us, actually, but uh, two of us, I guess, Google worthy. And the other Jeff Ratcliffe was a former professional lacrosse player, which is always funny because he's not that much older than me. I think he's maybe three or four years older than me. So that when I I was in high school or when I was uh, after high school. So five year um, reunion, I went to the five year high school reunion and this dude was playing for the Philadelphia team. I'm in the Philadelphia area and a lot of people thought it was me, which is kind of bizarre because I ran track in high school and college. I never once touched a lacrosse stick. So for me to like magically become a professional lacrosse player, I guess it made sense at the time, but uh, it is pretty funny. So the listing on Google has all of his information, but my picture. So <laughs> there you go. Jeff, I suppose we're compelled to start with Todd Gurley and the Rams running back situation, since that is the hot topic du jour. I know you just wrote about this for PFF. Uh, What's your take on this situation and on the value of Gurley and his rookie backup, Daryl Henderson? I think if people want to find something, they will find it. And I think there are a lot of folks out there who want to find that there is this massive conspiracy with Todd Gurley. And ultimately... You know, that that old adage of, you know, Akram's razor, the simplest answer is is the most likely answer. The simplest answer here is this team used Todd Gurley way too much early in the season. He was averaged 24 and a half touches per game over the first nine games of the season when he was lights out for fantasy. Right. But that's a massive workload. And then what we saw is he started to wear down. Now, they had a late buy as well. So I don't know. I'm never a fan of a week 12 buy or a week four buy, by the way. I, I think they. The NFL should do a better job of, of getting those in the middle of the season for these guys to have a, a rest week. But anyway, after the, the bye week, he comes back. 
Week 13, fine. Week 14 posts a posts a dud, but that was a tough matchup. Week 15 posts decent fantasy numbers, but it was because of touchdowns. And then week 16, he was out of the lineup. And he basically did nothing down the stretch. Now, this is a team that was in a Super Bowl window for sure and is still in a Super Bowl window. And we could argue, I, I mean, we'll never know for sure, but if Todd Gurley was healthy, maybe the Rams beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. We don't know. We really just simply will never know. But you have to figure that's on the Rams' mind. Todd Gurley, a huge part of what they do, especially the fact that they can take advantage of all those mismatches that they create out of 11 personnel pretty much all the time that they're running. So what do you do? You bring in somebody to spell him. They did not have that somebody on the roster last year. We, you know, People were hyped up over John Kelly in the preseason. It didn't happen. They had nobody to spell Gurley. So he's basically seeing 90% of the running back touches, just under 90%, which is too much. In today's NFL, you have to spell them. So what do you do? You get you go out and you find not a workhorse back, not a you know not a David Montgomery you know guy who you think you could get fifteen to twenty touches to. You get a guy who you can get five to ten touches to a game. Who any one of those touches he could take to the house, right? And that's Daryl Henderson. Now, granted, you had to do a little bit more at Memphis, but he's not really built like a prototype three down running back. He's built like a, a, a scat back, a guy who's going to come in and, and, you know, give you those quality touches, but you're not going to have him 15 to 20 per game. So people trying to force this issue. And I know, okay, Todd Gurley burnt your team last year. Yes. He purposely said, you know what? John Smith's fantasy team is doing too well. I'm going to screw him over. Right. Come on. It's not that I know we take things personally, but the reality is we have to think clearly like that's what separates people you know, successful gamblers, successful fantasy players, successful uh, stock market, you know, you know, speculators or brokers or whoever is is the ability to detach emotions. And when we attach emotion, detach emotions from this and we look at it for what it is, the team brought in a complimentary back and we can find all the conspiracy theories we want. We can react or overreact as much as we want. But the reality is that Todd Gurley is still the lead back. You know, people were freaking out over Ian Rappaport. And then when you read the quote that Ian Rappaport said, he uses the word probably, which to me is not a decisive word whatsoever, which means that he's probably speculating as well. Ian Rappaport, that is. I I just, I'm not buying it as far as a lot of people are. And I think what's going to end up happening is Todd Gurley is going to go a little bit too late. He's not the number one running back any longer. But, you know, late first round, if you're getting him in the second round in PPR, 12-team PPR drafts, I think that's a nice value at this point because you can very likely – that means you you may have a, a running back as well in the first round. So as Todd Gurley is your number two, he doesn't need 25 touches to be effective. He can get by on 18 touches a game, whereas Daryl Henderson's going to get overdrafted. Yes, he has that premium handcuff value, but otherwise it's going to be – a bumpy ride on a week in week out basis when you have boom and bust guys. So he's more of like an eighth round pick for me. Yeah. You mentioned investors and uh, along with gamblers and, and fantasy owners. And I really think like this might be a situation where the old investing axiom, uh, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets would apply since uh, if people are going to let Gurley slide into the second round and in some cases, maybe mid to late second round, that just seems a little bit crazy considering that, you know, they're not talking about this as well. It's obviously not some sort of ACL recovery or Achilles uh, recovery. Like this is, you know, something that limited him, but didn't completely knock him out late last year. And uh, 
I'm totally with you here, man. And obviously, like the the people drafting Henderson fifth or sixth round, I mean, that just seems like way too aggressive. Yeah, people want to push narratives, and unfortunately, there's a lot of groupthink, you know, in in fantasy as a whole. And that narrative is being pushed hard. And what's ironic is oftentimes people will put their fingers in their ear and pretend not to hear uh, literally like the same argument for a different player. You know, the people who are not drafting Todd Gurley, you say, okay, well, who do you want as the fifth running back off the board? And some of them will say, I don't know, maybe Melvin Gordon, a guy who has who gets hurt basically every year. You know, he's made it through in four seasons, one 16 game season. So, you know, we selectively use these arguments or David Johnson, which is so mind boggling to me that in February, when I was saying that David Johnson was not a fantasy bust in 2018, you would have thought that I was just basically blatantly saying F you everybody. And now everyone is on David Johnson, which is it's crazy how these things turn so quickly. But it's it's fantasy. (laughs) I mean, at this point, I, I'd like to act surprised, but I'm really not that surprised. There are definitely uh, there's like a market momentum phenomenon in uh, fantasy for sure, and we see that especially this time of year with the preseason ADPs. Jeff, you mentioned before you're a Philly guy, born and bred Eagles fan, so I would be remiss if I didn't take your temperature on a few Eagles related topics. I wouldn't say that Carson Wentz is necessarily a polarizing player, but it does seem like there's a divide between people who think he'd be uh, that he has potential to become a special player and those who view him as more just a, a solid starter. So how do you feel about Wentz? Where do you think we should have him ranked? Well, you know, and, and I should preface, I'm a fan of all 32 teams. It's hard to do this job and actually be, have an allegiance to any of these teams. So maybe 15 years ago, yeah, I was an Eagles fan. But today, I mean, there's something to like about every single NFL team. So more a fan of football in general. Uh, but with Carson Wentz, I mean, he he has youth on his side. He is, yes, last year struggled. But there were points in the offseason last year where he was questioning whether or not he was going to play at all. So obviously the fact that, you know, entering a season like that's never a good thing. But in 2017, we saw this 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 guy really break out and and take so well to the Doug Peterson offense and ultimately, you know, really be the guy that a lot of folks expected him to be. He was the number number two fantasy quarterback before he got hurt. So he, you know, just statistically was off the charts that season. And that was a season that was somewhat down at the position too. So it was pretty remarkable what he was able to do. He's, you know, so young They're They're locking him up now for the long haul. And the beauty is that he's got so many weapons at his disposal. Alshon Jeffrey, who can play that, you know, he's not a burner or anything, but he can play that X role. You have the burner in Deshaun Jackson who can still fly north of 30. Uh, you, you know, you have Aguilar out of the slot. You have Ertz as your, your move tight end in the short and intermediate. You even have, have Dallas Goddard, who's going to do some stuff in line for them. And then a lot of potential out of the backfield, including rookie Miles Sanders. Let's see if we can get healthy here. I don't anticipate any hiccups there, but so athletic and, and versatile out of that backfield. So it's just he's primed for a bounce back year. This is a year of great value at the quarterback position, just like we're continuing to see year after year. I don't know if he makes it to the late rounds per se, because I'm not really seeing him slip past round 10 in most drafts. But even if you're getting Carson Wentz as, a, as an eighth or ninth round guy in a 12-team league, I think that's a, a, a nice spot to be looking at him, you know, given the potential we've seen before and the upside that he offers. 
Yeah, there's great depth and there's a big middle class at the quarterback position. But, you know, maybe Wentz is more of an upper middle class guy than someone who, uh, you know, is in quarterback two territory. And um, yeah, also J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. I mean, maybe he doesn't make much of an impact if everyone stays healthy in that receiver core, but um, also another nice depth piece to have. Uh, Do you think there's anyone, based on what you've seen in early mocks and best ball drafts, Anyone in that wide receiver core who uh, is maybe priced incorrectly, or do you think everyone's basically going at roughly the ADP you anticipated? I I do think Alshon's incorrectly priced. I continue. I I feel like I'm getting, you know, near 100% exposure in these uh, early industry mocks, you know, the magazine mocks, et cetera. Uh, He just feels like he's going too low. I'm seeing him, you know, typically. His ADP is going to range on sites, but six-round ADP, I feel like that's just a tad low for a guy with wide receiver two uh, potential. You know, and I don't think that, uh, you know, that's more of like a front-end wide receiver three range. So I, I like that. And and in fact, uh, that kind of, you know, last year I had mentioned over and over again that I thought if you went running back in the first round, you could sort of modify on zero RB and hammer wide receiver second, third, fourth round, you know, potentially mix one of those tight ends in there and then go back to running back. This year, I'm seeing it really differently. It's running back early and often. I'm skipping over the big three tight ends because I don't like the value cost of taking them in that range. And I think the argument that, oh, but you have such a huge advantage at tight end, I think that's a little bit of a played out argument. I don't know how true that is, actually. Whereas there's some value in the next five tight ends, but wide receiver value just continues to fall. So, you you know, you're talking... I've seen certain drafts, you know, not industry, but I've seen certain drafts where Stefan Diggs can be gotten in the fourth round. You know, like you can get, uh, you know, guys like Alshon, you can get guys, uh, uh, you know, like Mike Williams with upside later on, Chris Godwin with upside later on, Allen Robinson. I I mean, it's like everybody forgets that he's a wide receiver and, and the number one for his team, Robbie Anderson, like all these guys is not super sexy. You're not you know, rolling out with Michael Thomas and Odell Beckham Jr. and Juju. But in the same right, I don't think you need to do that at wide receiver to be successful this year. I think you can load up on those wide receiver two types. And if you're really solid at running back, I mean, you're you're probably going to end up liking your roster a lot. Yeah, I'm with you on Alshon. I just took him at 602 in a best ball. And uh, it, it seems like you can get him right around there in every draft, which is just crazy. And I, I totally agree. He's a, a wide receiver two going at a wide receiver three price. How do you think we should be viewing Philadelphia's running back situation, Jeff? Could either Jordan Howard or Miles Sanders become the guy, or is this destined to be a committee? Well, I don't think that they're ever going to have a the guy. Um, you know, even though Howie Roseman did say that they that Sanders reminded him of running backs past. He said that in the post draft presser. And to me, I mean, the instant thought for me was, gee, I wonder who in a West Coast offense he could be talking about. And Brian Westbrook is is the obvious name. Sanders is super athletic, so I think you have that in common. He's not the same type of player per se as Westbrook, but maybe they view him as a guy who can do some similar things in that offense. 
Um, but you know, I don't think there's going to be a the guy. I also don't understand why people want to selectively forget about Jordan Howard's <laughs> performance last year. Um, he's he's one of, another one of those guys. I always say the love to loves and the love to hates. So for some reason, like for example, Cam Newton over the course of his career has been a, a, a really top end fantasy quarterback, but yet fantasy players love to hate him. And then Jordan Howard is coming off a super disappointing year. And, you know, fantasy players love to love him. I, I, I don't get it. It's the same exact offense in Philadelphia as it was in Chicago where he struggled. He is not going to catch the ball out of the backfield. I don't care what beat writers say. I don't care what coaches say. It's just not going to happen. So for me, he's kind of like Jay Ajayi 2.0 where you're, you're looking at 10 to 12 carries. And that's about that with him. Sanders has the most uh, three, the best three down potential in that offense. So I wouldn't rule it out per se, but I think he's more of an RB two. I think he's more, you know, you look at him from the long term standpoint. That's where it's really appealing, you know, for dynasty purposes with Sanders. Is there anyone of Corey Clements, Wendell Smallwood, or Josh Adams, or even Boston Scott who has a chance to be fantasy relevant without some sort of major injury to one of the two leading guys? I don't think you you sign you know you bring in a uh you know priority guy in the offseason not sign but you know bring you know make a move to get a guy at the position and then also spend a round two pick you know not this isn't like a fifth round or a sixth round guy or you know the eagles over the last two seasons you mentioned clement and adams those were udfas so i don't think you make a a play like that unless you're really wanted to address the position so i i don't see it you know, those guys were always, especially Clement and Smallwood, were, were always tricky to evaluate because it was like, which week was is it going to be this guy and which week is going to be the other guy? So I really don't think so this year. I think it would have to take, you know, injuries to both Sanders and Howard for them to be uh, fantasy options. Yeah, that does seem like a pretty decisive front office referendum on the position, I guess. Um, should we be wary of a target drop off for Zach Ertz this year? I don't think so. I don't see anything that would indicate that. You think he's going to be, even with the the Deshaun Jackson addition and, uh, I don't know, possibly maybe a a slightly larger role for Dallas Goddard? Well, so this is, I always talk about the Roto World effect. You know, having been somebody who worked for Roto World in the past, I, I respect, obviously, greatly Roto World and love what they do. But there is this effect on fantasy players, and and it happened to me the other day. I always know when Roto World blurbs about a pl- like a random player because I'll start getting questions about that random player. This time it was Matt Lacoste. Somebody asked me about Matt Lacoste. I'm like, hmm, Roto World must have blurbed about Matt Lacoste. <laughs> but um, they blurbed about um, Dallas Goddard a few weeks ago, and it, and it was something to the effect of how the the team really loves him, or they want to increase his role, and and. Those are statements that teams will certainly make, but it's not necessarily things that we want to completely go overboard for fantasy purposes. Like if they want to get him involved more. Yes, of course they do. That's why they drafted him. Like they're not drafting him to have him just sit on the bench in an optimal sense. Like they want to get guys involved and and Goddard showed last year that he can be a, a viable option for them. But when you look at the roles, Goddard is a big dude he's very mobile but he's a big dude he's Zach Ertz and him are not the same type of player from that standpoint Goddard can be more involved as a blocker as well and I I see him you know as that inline guy whereas the move guy is really the priority 
And that's that's going to be Zach Ertz. Now, maybe he regresses a little bit from last year, but last year was an enormous workload. He's still an elite fantasy option. He's still a guy who can go out there, you know, and obviously catch six, seven, eight, nine balls a week and and just put up big numbers for the position. So I'm not worried about it at all. They're going to spread the ball around a little, but that's what that offense does anyway. But at this point, you know, Ertz is still really in the wheelhouse of his career. Let me ask you about Philadelphia in general. Help the non-Philadelphians understand the Philly folk. So what what sets Philadelphians apart from New Yorkers, Bostonians, or other big city East Coasters? And do Philly sports fans get a bad rap? I think there's more in common with Boston and New York than there is really anywhere else, you know, first and foremost. Um, So, you know, like I had said one time, uh, I, I went to Chicago. I've been to Chicago a couple of times now, but the first time I went there was several years ago for an FSTA conference. And, and I was kind of, I felt fam- in, like in familiar surroundings because Chicago is a big city, but it's not as big as New York. Like New York is just, you know, Manhattan has that like, wow, this is like a city on steroids type feel. Whereas Philly doesn't really have that, but you, you get the sense it's not a tiny town. You know, it's not like, um, you know, one of those smaller Midwestern cities like like Cincinnati or something like that, right? So I got that feel in in Chicago. Kind of felt a little bit like Philly, except the weird thing for me as a Philadelphian was that people were nice. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> I don't want you to be nice to me. I want like being rude to me is like a sign of respect. <laughs> you know, like that's that's just sort of how I feel, and that's sort of the way that things things are here. And it's not it's not not a bad thing per se. It's just I know that a lot of the country is not that way. Most of the country is rather polite and we're just more blunt about things, but, um, separating us from New York and Boston. I mean, the only thing that I can really think of right off the top of my head, because we are so similar is the accents are, are quite different. You know, the New York and Boston accent have more in common with each other than the Philadelphia accent. The Philadelphia accent has more in common actually with like the Baltimore accent than it does with, with New York or, or Boston. They're quite similar, the Baltimore and Philadelphia accents, but also you'll notice like when I'm speaking, I don't really have that accent. I have, uh, you know, maybe some elements of it, but for the most part, don't really have it because it's kind of fading in in certain parts of the city, which is just fascinating. You know, I love uh, accents in general, um, but the Philly fan is is a passionate fan. Now, they can be very negative at times like, because they expect the highest, you know, they expect, um, uh, you know, perfection you know usually and, and unfortunately in philadelphia we we haven't had much of that you know this super bowl championship you had the philly phillies win in 2008 which is now 11 years ago and then before that i think the last championship they that philly had was like 1983 or 82 and the sixers won uh you know not much <laughs> in philly so it's sort of like a long-suffering fan base, which I know certain cities had, but they also had success elsewhere. Like the, you know, the Chicago baseball fans, but then you had Jordan, right? (laughs) You have like the Boston Red Sox now, of course, are, are, you know, crushing it. But even when they were like long suffering, they had the beginning of the Patriots dynasty. Like we just in Philly haven't had much of anything. So I think that's part of where that mentality, we're just always expecting the worst. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And with the Eagles, I mean, they've got they used to get so close in the McNabb era and just could never get over the the hump. And um, I, I suppose there are high expect expectations in the other sports because they had 
just these standards of excellence with the Dr. J. Moses Malone Sixers, the the Mike Schmidt Phillies of of the late seventies and early eighties, the uh, you know the Bobby Clark Flyers going way back. So um, yeah, I can understand that that high level of expectation. What are what are some of your favorite things about the city, Jeff? Whether it's food or attractions or uh, just lifestyle. Well, I do like uh, some of the elements of food. I mean, uh, cheesesteaks are what people typically go. That's the go to. Um, I always say don't go to Pat's or Gino's. Sorry, Pat's or Gino's. <laughs> I'm, I'm open to sponsoring you guys, but I typically recommend going to Steve Prince of Steaks. Uh, I mean, that's my preference. But uh, soft pretzels is, you know, staple. It's kind of bizarre for me to go elsewhere. It's like. Like, uh, you know, you, you can get re- you can get fairly decent bagels here, not as good as in New York, but then you go elsewhere and you really just can't get a good bagel. Um, you can't get a good soft pretzel <laughs> anywhere uh, when I'm outside of Philadelphia, unfortunately. But um, there's that. There's a great craft beer scene in Philadelphia. I'd say it's one of the best beer cities in the country, which is saying something right now in the U.S. Uh, the city has all of the historic elements to it, which is something that I didn't actually realize. I mean, I knew it was there, but I didn't really see the city until I had a friend visit from, from England and we were showing him around and I'm like, I've lived here all my life. I'm like 31 years old and now I'm finally seeing the city, but there's so many cool elements like that. The art museum, of course, boathouse row, uh, you, you know, you have this, the, you know, the independence hall and that h- historic part of town. I mean, it's just so many, so many places like that in Philly just make it a, a pretty special place to be. Plus the fact I always say we're, you know, we're an hour and a half from New York city. We're an hour and a half from the Jersey shore. We're two hours from the Poconos. You know, you kind of have like all of these, you know, you can go skiing, you can go to the beach, you can go to the biggest city in the world, all within basically a driving distance. Yeah, it's nice to be that centrally located to so many uh, great spots. Jeff, you have a PhD in cultural anthropology. Is that right? <laughs> so what attracted you to that subject when you were in school? Um, heading into undergrad, I wanted to be an archaeologist uh, because I I thought it was always cool. It was something that, you know, the past kind of interests me. And, you know, Indiana Jones certainly didn't hurt the cause. So when I went into undergrad as um, an anthropology major with archaeology option in my first semester, I had archaeology like intro and f- I, maybe it was fortunate because uh, the professor who taught it, I'm, I, I mean, so this is 1997 and she was had to have been in her seventies at that point. So she probably, what did she get her, her degrees in like the 1950s? And basically that's what it felt like to me. And so I kind of realized quickly, whoa, this is just digging through trash, you know, which no, love to my archaeology friends, but it just wasn't my vibe. It's it's a certain type of person who succeeds in that area, just like anything. And I was fortunate enough in my second semester to have uh, intro to cultural and uh, the professor just was the coolest dude ever, you know, and, and just made everything look awesome. In fact, in the book I wrote, I I, th- I thanked him for making anthropology look cool. And it was like, I want to do that. I want to be him. And so I kind of went through the process there. You know, in undergrad, I was honestly not really thinking about 
the future as much as I probably should have at the time as, you know, late teens, early twenties, wanted to, you know, run track, wanted to do my radio show, that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, I was, I get to my senior year and there, uh, I did an honors thesis and one of my professors who was on my panel asked like, what are you doing after this? And I was like, I really don't know. (laughs) He's like, well, you should go to grad school. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. And so then I went to grad school and uh, really kind of got, you know, much deeper into it there. I was lucky enough to go to Temple University for grad school and, uh, you know, really, you know, get back to Philly and everything like that. And things just kept rolling. And you also did some teaching. Is that right? Yeah, for a long time, long time. I was, I was given a class my second semester in grad school, you know, and, and, um, it was one of those things where I just replied to an email like, yeah, I want a class. Uh, and we had to take this, this course in order to qualify. It was just called teaching of anthropology. Uh, it was like, you know, grad credits, et cetera, to qualify to do that. So I got a class and I, I guess it was just one of those dumb luck things where I probably shouldn't have gotten the class, but I got it. Uh, because I, I was not a TA, like I never TA'd. So I'm 23 years old, second semester of grad school, <laughs> like barely ahead of these students. I mean, granted, I had the undergrad degree and all that, but uh, it was it was a weird experience. You know, it was one of those things where I basically the entire semester was, you know, they always say like fake it until you make it. Well, I was I was faking it like I was basically trying to prove that I belong there as opposed to like doing the job itself. Uh, and I've, I've heard that fake it until you make it. And I've also heard fake it until you are it. Cause one of the things that I've noticed over my career is like, when you start doing something, you never really feel like you belong doing that something. Like when I started doing radio, I didn't really feel like I belonged on air. I, when I started doing this job, I didn't feel like I belonged there. When I started doing TV, I didn't feel like I belonged there. And you just kind of have to keep going. And eventually you, you you feel like you belong, sort of. I mean, I guess you can never get totally comfortable, but um, you, you ultimately become it that way as opposed to uh, you're just it from the start, if that makes any sense. It does. And yeah, you mentioned the radio show. So you do your radio show solo for like an hour or two, uh, depending on time of year. And I don't think there are many fantasy analysts who do as much solo radio and podcasting work as you do. So did your... Did your experience as a lecturer help you as a radio host? I think it did, you know, and and that's the weird thing about life is I, I well, I feel bad. I guess I'm like all these sorts of tangents here, but I feel bad when, you know, young kids will say like, what did you do to become, you know, to, to get your job? And it's like, I was just really lucky. And I, <laughs> I, I emailed the right, the exact right person at the exact right time. But beyond that, though, there are other elements that really kind of played into it. You know, I did not go to school for journalism, but I I was able to write because a big part of the social sciences is writing. Now, granted, I was writing for an academic audience and now I'm writing for, you know, just a popular audience like fans of, of football and players and fantasy and DFS and gambling. But you have to be able to communicate in that sense, you know, uh, written verbally, et cetera. And so that set me up for that. And, and, you know, having to stand in front of a room of people day in and day out, and oftentimes, you know, present material in an 
organized, articulate, entertaining. You know, that's one of the underrated aspects of being a professor is you, you do have to somewhat entertain or else you lose their attention. And in a cell phone era, that's like lethal. Like they're gone, then then it's over. Uh, and and all of that, and then in the same right, putting it in a format that they can understand. You know, that's the other challenge. You know, realizing that, hey, these these kids have not. You know, most of them had no exposure to anthropology before, so I can't talk to them like I would talk to somebody else with a PhD. And that's not a bad thing. I just have to make sure that it's relatable. I've always taken that approach with. Uh, with football, you know, let me see if I can explain fantasy and explain football like uh, in a way that my grandma could understand, not dumbing it down, not talking, you know, talking down to anybody, but just more relatable. And and that way that anybody can take the concepts and apply them, you know, that plus, uh, you know, just that background of doing it day in and day out, all the reps. I mean, there are times where I would teach, you know, seven, eight sections in a in a semester which is like insane, but that's how, that's what you had to do as an adjunct professor to to get by. All those reps really played out, so that you know on air, I can you know luckily do what I do. You know it is different. I, I it's it's weird. I didn't start out that way. I worked with Mike Clay the first season before he left for ESPN on uh, Sirius XM. We had the show together, but um, and it took some convincing to do. Because when I said, hey, I, I think I can do the show by myself, like there were people who said, eh, well, maybe we want to get a co-host. And I said, just trust me on this. Just trust me. I can I can do And if it doesn't work, we'll do a co-host. And, and we haven't gotten a co-host yet. So we'll see. Yeah. And, and you really do uh, hit the right notes as far as not, um, you know, not making it an ABCs type of thing for the advanced player and yet making it, uh, I guess, accessible is the word to uh, the more novice players. It, it just seems like you're finding the right balance and, and hitting all audience as well. And maybe it is that transferable skill set from your days as a lecturer. Um, so we should square the circle here. Jeff, how did your fantasy career get started? So I think it has to go back a little bit further. So I played a lot of poker in the like, you know, Chris Moneymaker boom. You know, it started out when that was happening. It was like, oh, wow, we should, we start playing at home. And then uh, I, I don't at that time, you know, not far from Atlantic City. And so we would go to Atlantic City because it was like the only place you could play. Now there's like a poker room like 20 minutes from my house in Pennsylvania and I don't play anymore, but uh, we would play a lot. And then I got really into online. Out of my friends, I was the one who dove the deepest in. And so the at the extreme end of things before poker collapsed online, I was doing, um, you know, I was playing six max. So if you don't know poker, that's when there's only six players at a at a table and I was multi-table in four to six tables of six max, which like when you talk about like how fast you have to make decisions, it's like every decision is like lightning quick <laughs> and it really takes a toll on you. If like you do that for like two hours straight, it, it does. And and so I, I realized like I love the game, but I was also miserable. And during the process, though, I did write a little bit about poker theory and, you know, like hands and things like that and how I played certain hands. It, it was nothing more than just a cheesy blog. So anyway, that that imploded, poker imploded, that is. And I was lucky to cash out before the full tilt fiasco played out. So anyway, I had always played fantasy, you know, as far back as uh, the late 90s, I was a, a fantasy player. But I really started to pick up, um, 
just my interest right in and around that same range. And I, I mean, part of it, maybe you credit Tom Brady's breakout 2007 year and, and the fact that I had like a hundred percent exposure to him in my home leagues and all of that just started, you know, really piqued my interest uh, to another level. And then I just started to think about, you know, maybe I could write about this. I didn't really do anything until 2009 though. I wrote like a cheesy little blog and, um, 2010, it was, it's crazy. It, it was basically like nine years ago, as I'm talking to you right now, I thought maybe I could like see if I get published. I didn't want to make any money. I just wanted to like have something on the internet that said my name. And I looked for jobs and there were like two or three of them available. Um, and one of them was this site called fantasy football depth chart, fantasy fantasyfootballdc.com, which is not no longer there. Uh, so I reached out to, to that site and that site happened to be run by Mike Clay. And um, he said, well, I'm thinking about folding this site because I have another opportunity. He's like, can I get back to you in like, you know, a couple of weeks? So he gets back to me and he said, do you have any background in stats? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I didn't have, I had no background <laughs> in stats. <laughs> So I just knew I could do numbers though from like poker. So I was like, yeah, I can do football stats. Sure. And it turned out that he had reached out to Neil Hornsby at PFF and said that he would start a fantasy part of the site if Neil would let him. And Neil said yes. And so I was in ground floor. And it's so funny thinking back because I was... I was wasn't high on the totem pole. There were several guys who Mike, you know, kind of prioritized over me, and that was fine because I had really no business being there. Like it's funny, like even the article I submitted to him is like a terrible article on Beanie Wells, like about how it was, I was like a total Kool Aid drinker on Beanie Wells at the time. But um, the first year I wrote this column based on you know just it was like. Uh, kind of like under the radar waiver guys they called value town but um i used to literally count the articles that i would submit like i'd be like now i've i've now i have three articles published now i have four articles published i would do that the first year it was it's was so funny looking back uh within a about a year or so of that he needed some help editing because mike was doing like everything in the beginning so he asked me as one of the people and then uh, like a year after that, we were we started selling subscriptions. But right before we did that, the two other main editors left. So it went from like us having like Mike, me, and these two other guys to just Mike and me. And then it was like Mike and me for the next whatever three years, four years before he left for ESPN. It's weird. Like we used to, we'd go to all the FSTAs together, like fly together because he didn't live that far from where I lived. And, um, it, it's now it's like always strange for me to go to these events and like, you know, not travel with Mike and not, I did not get to see him as much as I used to. Cause we were like, literally we talk five times a day, every day. And, you know, always in constant communication over that time to just build up the fantasy arm of, of PFF. It's just, it's weird how it all happens. Like not what I plan to do, but, uh, life, as I said, you know, it seems to happen for reasons. Yeah, really. And and less than a full decade later and, uh, you know, how you've ascended there and now, you know, leading this dream team with you and Scott Barrett and Pat Thorman and some of these other great folks. So that's really cool how that evolved. Um, 
All right, Jeff, let me hit you with a few more rapid fire fantasy questions before I let you run. Uh, assuming Patrick Mahomes is still your number one quarterback, who's number two for you right now? I just wrote an article up about this. So I'm going with Deshaun Watson. I think you can make a fair argument for Andrew Luck, but for me, the reason why it's Watson is because he's the modern fantasy quarterback. You know, he has the ability to throw the ball, but it's more the ability to to run the football. And and not that Luck is a huge slouch in that area. He's he's decent in that area, but he just doesn't have as much upside as Watson. So given what we saw to Watson last year, he wasn't the electric player he was over those that five game stretch in his rookie season, but he was still pretty darn good. Uh, and and the weapons, if QT and Fuller stay healthy, and I know that's an if, but if they stay stay healthy, Watson could be a monster this year. I know you've been knee deep in best ball drafts for a while now. So who are your some some of your most frequently drafted guys? Guys you just can't resist at, at price. It's tough. I, I mean, I try to avoid that as much as I can. Because if I, you know, if I have more than like thirty five percent exposure, I start to be uncomfortable with those guys. Right. When you're playing a lot of leagues, you gotta you gotta worry about that sort of thing. Yeah. But, uh, who do you have a lot of exposure to? Right. Now? I've noticed. I uh, the guys that sort of stick out for some reason. I do have a little bit extra Marlon Mack. Um, and I'm not. It's not even that I believe that much in Marlon Mack. It's just I, I again I kind of believe the narrative. Like we talked about the narrative that the Eagles you know, uh, basically presented, even though they didn't overtly say addressing running back. Well, you kind of get that reverse narrative from the Colts. They didn't address running back that, I mean, nothing of significance. Spencer Ware isn't any, anything of significance. So that, that tells me they really believe in him and he was so good down the stretch. So I have a little bit extra of him. Um, let's see who else do I have, you know, like, um, I, I find that I always kind of get that the other guy, you know, so I I think I have maybe a little bit extra exposure to Royce Freeman and Rashad Penny, you know, the other guy in the backfield. I know I have more exposure of Alshon Jeffrey because I just get keep getting him at value. Uh, Alan Robinson, another one. Marvin Jones, another one. A lot of a lot of folks forget when he was on the field and it was him and Galladay it was actually Jones who was seeing all the end zone targets. Like Matthew Stafford just has eyes for him when it comes to the end zone. So a lot of him tight ends, uh, as I mentioned, I'm basically passing up the big three this year. So out of the next guys, I've probably have more Jared cook than anything, but I have noticed I've gotten a, a good share of Ebron as well. So Hunter Henry, OJ Howard seemed to go a little bit too early and then uh, Evan Ingram's kind of right on that cusp. So if Ebron slips, I typically grab him. And if Cook's there, I grab him. I'm also seeing a little bit more maybe Vance McDonald than uh, you know than other options on, on the roster. Quarterback's fairly spread out. It really depends. Each draft's slightly different there. You know, so sometimes you'll see guys like Breeze fall. And and then I'll I'll go after him, even though it's not Breeze from several years ago. The fact that you know you get to that value breaking point, uh, a lot of Ben Roethlisberger it seems like he falls a lot, and and I'm still comfortable enough with the upside. I don't, you know, obviously he's going to regress from last year, but he was he had a five thousand yard season last year, so of course he's going to regress. And people aren't right, and people aren't really drafting him like he's going to be a top five quarterback. So you yeah. can actually get him at value in some of these drafts. Yeah, Dak Prescott, 
is another one that I've, I've consistently got at value. Now, not enough. He doesn't have a ton of upside, though, for best ball, but I figure so, you can't just draft for upside in best ball. Like You also have to consider – uh, that you you might need some points to just kind of get you by if you know and and that's what he offers there. So if you paired Dak Prescott up with an upside option at the position, then you're you know not in a bad situation there for optimal roster construction. Anyone you're finding just like grossly overpriced right now? <sighs> um, let's see. I mean, I I think generally speaking, Mahomes if he goes earlier than the fourth round is overpriced. But best best ball audience is the best ball crowd is a little bit more savvy, so I don't think I'm really seeing that necessarily. Uh, I can't really argue with much the running back position. I, I don't think so. You know, I don't really. I, I think that generally because of how savvy best ball players are, I, I don't see anybody who's just like crazy too high or crazy too low. All right, last thing before I let you run, Jeff. Uh, there seems to be a pretty clear consensus that Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott, Christian McCaffrey, and Alvin Kamara are the top four running backs. But people are sort of ordering them in different ways, and I've, I've seen more and more cases that you know either Kamara or McCaffrey uh, has a pretty good case to go number one. How do you order those four, assuming that is your top four? Yeah, it, and it is, um, and that's a clear tier right there. I think this is so tricky. I've said it a bunch of times on air. Like if you told me you were going to draft any one of them first overall, I really wouldn't argue against you. Um, for me, as I'm looking through it more and more, and it's interesting that you bring this up because this is actually the, this is the article I'm assigned for uh, tomorrow at PFF. Uh, I'm actually, I've, I've shifted my thinking just slightly as I'm writing profiles for the PFF fantasy draft guide. And I think I'm actually going to position Ezekiel Elliott as the number one. And the reason for that is really a combination of factors, but it it really ultimately comes down to volume and then the overall state of the offense. So no denying Barkley's going to see volume, but the overall state of the offense in New York is certainly worse for wear than what we see in in, uh, Dallas. McCaffrey and Kamara, the question with those guys because they will see volume, but it's more of an efficiency thing. Like Camaro was off the charts from an efficiency standpoint, basically all of last year. Uh, McCaffrey down the stretch was off the charts from an efficiency standpoint. We typically see regression when it comes to efficiency because efficiency from a fantasy points per touch standpoint is, is closely tied to touchdown productivity and touchdowns are the, the most likely area for any sort of regression. So when I look at at Elliott, like they did draft Pollard. I don't know how much Pollard is going to be involved in the passing game. But even if Elliott regresses a little bit in terms of his target share, I, I still think that, you know, he's the odds on favorite, obviously, to, to lead the league in carries. And he may be the favorite as well to lead the league in touches. When you put that all together, that volume gives him the highest floor of the group. So if I'm going to really debate I don't necessarily want to debate high ceiling because now we're getting more into the the hypothetical. I'd rather debate debate highest floor, and that's Elliot. So you know, I have him as the number one. That makes sense to me. I definitely buy that. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on with me. I have just immense respect for you and your work, and I'm really glad we finally had a chance to talk. Before I let you run, can you remind people where they can find you? And uh, even though you just uh, gave us a little preview of what you're going to be writing about. Uh, feel free to pitch anything else you have coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Um, you know, much respect for you as well. 
you know, you mentioned ranking. Well, you you do pretty well in that department as well, my friend. So, you know, oh, a pleasure you. to be on the show with you. But, uh, you know, on social media at Jeff Ratcliffe, so that's Twitter and Instagram. You can check me out. Uh, the podcast, just, you know, Pro Football Focus Fantasy Podcast. And then, of course, we have the show on SiriusXM. And um, during the season, I'm on CBS Sports Network on TV during, you know, for Sunday pregames. So you can check us out there. We're actually talking fantasy on an NFL pregame show, which is always fun. But, uh, yeah, the article is uh, about, you know, who's number one. So a lot of what I just said there will be fleshed out in greater detail. Uh, you know, just kind of my goal is to like, I don't want to tell you who you should take. I want to tell you who I'm going to take and why I'm going to take that player. Like I'm the, I'm not the, the old, um, <laughs> fantasy mentality, like fantasy analysts from 20 years ago, like you must take this player because I work for this four letter or three letter network. Well, you know, that's not the way that the fantasy industry is today. And, and I just want to pull the curtain back and say, Hey, this is the thought process here. You can take it or leave it, but at least now you know it and maybe you can incorporate it as well. Um, but yeah, the, the fantasy playbook is what I'm working on as a whole. That's the draft guide magazine that I produce. It's a PDF at pro football focus that, uh, comes out in July. And, um, basically it's my entire draft plan for the year encapsulated in about 80 pages of a PDF that you can download. Yeah, this is Jeff exposing himself, uh, all his home league friends probably buying this so they can uh, have the goods on Jeff before their August drafts. Um, Appreciate you coming on, Jeff. Thanks again. And uh, trust me, folks, I am a PFF subscriber. A subscription is well worth your while. So thanks again, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, appreciate it. Okay, amigos, we're just about out of time. Let me once again thank this week's guest, Mr. Jeff Ratcliffe of Pro Football Focus. Find him on Twitter at Jeff Ratcliffe. And seriously, people, I will always be honest with you about which sites I subscribe to with my own hard-earned money. I'm a very satisfied PFF subscriber, and I can assure you that subscription is worth every penny. A big thank you to my producer, Calm Kelly the finest producer of fantasy football podcasts in all of Ireland. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. Thank you to my dear friend and colleague and co-general manager, Melissa Jacobs, a.k.a. The Football Girl. She hosts my fantasy rankings and articles at thefootballgirl.com and also helps make this podcast possible. Find her on Twitter at The Football Girl. Thank you to International Jet Set for the music, especially my good friends Dan Fernandez and Jeff Carpenter. And thank you for listening. My friends, I'm grateful for your support, and I can only hope I'm giving you an adequate return on your time investment. All right, everyone, that's the show. I'll be back again next week with another great guest. Until then, stay out of trouble, love thy neighbor, and don't pick up any bad pennies. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in, are you?